Holy Spirit, we wait on you this morning and we ask you to come on this Pentecost Sunday as we, we with the global church remember, remember this day when you were poured out afresh on God's people. We, we wait on you and we, we ask you, Holy Spirit, to be present here with us this morning, to be real and, uh, and to make the love of God and the presence of the kingdom of God real in our lives now. Amen. Let's see if it's working. Ah, oh, yes, I think it's... <laughs> Look at this. It's the magical turn it off and turn it on again trick. It's... Uh, wow. Um, so, anyone know where the stadium is? No. Barcelona, there we go. It's a, isn't, it an, isn't it an incredible stadium, right? Um, it's just massive. And, and you say to yourself, on this Pentecost Sunday, what, why does Mark put up a picture of a stadium? Well, uh, we can think about the biblical cosmology or the way the Bible talks about the world a bit like this as a stadium, and to un- the world as a stadium. And to understand Pentecost, this metaphor will be very helpful. And we've got to understand Pentecost and the role of the Holy Spirit. We've got to go right back to the beginning of the Bible. And the Bible says that in the beginning, the earth was formless and void. Uh, there was chaos all around, and then God created the world. We sometimes think God created all of that before this world was created, there was really just nothing except God. But that's not true. The Bible says that this world was created in the context of pre-existing spiritual beings, a whole realm, a whole universe of, of divine beings. The Bible gives these various names, uh, one of the most common of which is Elohim. And a bunch of these uh, spiritual beings had uh, decided that they didn't want to follow Yahweh, the God who is the, the, the one true God, the God over all gods. And so the, what this one true God, Yahweh, does is he says, I'm going to defeat pre-existing cosmic evil, the rebellion of the spiritual beings against me. I'm going to defeat this evil at the, at, in all of reality by creating a, a battlefield or a sports field or a contest where f- beings made in my image with a capacity to choose between good and evil are going to go toe-to-toe against all the potential and possibilities of evil in the world. And on that battlefield, once and for all, Good and evil are going to battle it out, and Yahweh, God, is going to be shown to be wise. In, and, and all the rebellious Elohim, all the other angels who have rebelled against Yahweh, will, will be, will be uh, overcome, and they'll see that Yahweh is to be trusted, and that good uh, overcomes evil. The best illustration is like those stands are are all the spiritual beings, what the Bible in the New Testament calls the principalities and powers who are watching to see, okay, Yahweh, okay, God, how is your plan going to work? Are these free beings actually going to choose good over evil? Are they going to follow you, God, or are they going to follow us? 
and the playing field, the pitch, what do you think that is in this metaphor? It's the world. That's us. That's, we're, that's the pitch. And who do you think is on the pitch? Opposing teams, us. Human beings, God puts us on the pitch. And then on the opposing team is Satan and the rebellious angels. And, and we're to play the game of life on that pitch with all the principalities and powers, all the spiritual beings looking around and seeing what's going to happen, what's going to happen here, right? What are these people going to do? Are they going to choose God? That's the question. Uh, so, creation is all about, let's see, setting up the stadium. We see this in Genesis 1. Is it working? Yes. But what we see immediately after this whole story's got going is uh, Adam and Eve are the symbolic human beings. That's the team on the pitch. But do you think they play the game God's way? What's the, at the very first opportunity, Adam and Eve go, hey, you know, God, I'm not so sure. I think I'd rather play this game without you. And, and gee, the Satan, the, uh, the, the, the rebellious Elohim, you've got a much better strategy uh, for me to win at life. Rather than trust God, why don't I just, why don't we make up our own rules? Like, we're in charge here. And so Adam and Eve do that. And they muck everything up. Uh, we know that. We know that in this stadium of life, this game of life, it's not working the way it's meant to work, is it? And we know that because one of the biggest problems people have with the existence of God is the reality of suffering and evil. And we just go, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there so much evil in the world? And... Even more poignantly, why do we all end up dying on the soccer pitch? <laughs> like, that's not a good game, right? Normally, you know, when, you know, when Barcelona play Madrid, no matter how hot the tempers are, at the end of the game, the players don't all fall over and die. They go off and they celebrate and they live happily ever after. Um, why do we all die? Well, we, because human beings, instead of following God's plan, they, they sided with the fallen angels and they went, no, I, I think I'm going to do life without God. Um, Genesis 3 tells us that. Uh, here we go. We'll just keep moving. So then what happens after Adam and Eve come onto the pitch? God goes, yeah, okay, Adam and Eve, you're kind of stuffed up here. All their descendants... Goals from Genesis 1, 2, 3. Then Genesis 3 to 11, humanity keeps making bad choices. So eventually God goes, we need a new team, people. Let's sub in a new team. These guys are just, they've just screwed up all the time, right? So God subs in a new team. He takes off Adam's descendants, Genesis 1 to 11, has uh, the, the flood. Like the, flood think of the flood is like a highly localized rain shower that washes the pitch clean. It's, got, it's like a Let's just get, get, let's get the pitch cleaned and let's sub in a new team. Who's the new team that God subs in? Israel. Yeah, I gave you a hint there. It doesn't work to ask rhetorical questions when the answer is already on the board. What a terrible teacher am I. That wouldn't work. This is, this is the, the God subbing in the team. 
Uh, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. He says God says, I'm going to add, Israel is going to be like Adam and Eve again, the new team full of God's blessing and presence. And I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. So you're going to win. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So, so Team Israel comes on, and, and they are off to a great start. I mean, a tremendous start, an extraordinary start. Their team leader, Abraham, within like two chapters of being subbed onto the field to, to follow in Yahweh's way, a life of love and service, he's pimping out his wife. He's lying. He's just making bad choice after bad choice after bad choice. And, and you can just imagine, this, you imagine if uh, all, the, all the angels in the stadium around going, what? Oh. It's a bit like um, if you've watched in Question Time and Parliament, right, uh, occasionally. Maybe go watch some old clips of YouTube uh, Paul Keating uh, getting stuck into uh, Alexander Downer. And, uh, um, and you see, you know, you see all the opposition when, when Keating was in full flight, tearing strips off the opposition, all, all Downer's colleagues just sort of shriveling away going, oh, geez, this really isn't going very well, is it? You can just see them shrinking. So that's, that's sort of what's going on to change metaphors back to the stadium. You can see everyone going, oh, geez, God. This isn't a really good idea. Like, look at what these people are doing. You had Team A. You had your first team, Adam and Eve, and all their descendants. They've stuffed it up. You subbed in Team B, Israel. Man, they've stuffed it up as well. And, and it just keeps getting worse and worse. They make the same old bad choices over and over and over again. Uh, it gets worse. Exodus, we're doing the whole Bible in one hit here, by the way, guys. There's, or the entire... We'll be finished by about mid-afternoon. Um, Israel have just, they've just come out of slavery. God has miraculously saved them. God's helping them on the team. He's coaching them. He's, he's giving them blessings. And, and they just keep stuffing up. So they're out of Israel. And um, they, you know, Moses goes up to go have a chat with God, come back with a fresh set of instructions. He's been up there in the mountain and God's laid out the game plan for him. He's given him, uh, you know, a couple of tablets, you know, Samsung and an Apple just to, you know, make sure that they're, you know, it's compatible with everything. Comes down. He's, and what's happened? They're all the jolly Israelites going off worshiping the other gods. They're like, oh, Yahweh, forget Yahweh. We like free sex. We like debauchery. We like sensuality. We like money. We like control. We'll just go and just... Same old, same old, bad choices. And, uh, and God ends up in verse 10. Like this is, if you've ever coached a sports team, maybe you've sometimes felt like this. Uh, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. God says, I, I just want to get rid of these guys. They're stuffing up again and again and again. And he says, I'll start again with you, Moses. And Moses goes, no, nah, no, nah, don't, don't do that. God, you... Stick with your plan, God. And um, God does. And the rest of the Old Testament is a story of this team messing up, messing up. As much as God tells them what to do, they just fail to do it. Um, have, have, have you ever had that experience? 
where you know what the right thing to do is, but you find it hard to do? Anyone ever had that experience here? Well, let me give you an example. Uh, you know, the Bible says, for example, here's the right thing to do. Uh, treat everybody else that you come across exactly the way you would want to be treated yourself. How have you gone at doing that this morning? Like we know the instructions. We know what we're supposed to do, but boy, we struggle to do it. And Israel struggles and struggles and struggles. And so then what happens in the Old Testament is God raises up some people called the prophets. And the prophets come along and they say to Israel, hey, listen, uh, I've got a promise for you that God, and this is a promise to all the watching spiritual beings in the stadium around. He says, I've got a promise that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send a better team. I'm going to fix up what's wrong with Team Israel, what's wrong with Team Adam and Eve, what's wrong with Team Mark, what's wrong with Team Darling Street. See, and, and what is what's, what's really wrong with Team Israel and with you and me? Is the real problem that we don't know how to live? We don't know what God wants of us? That's not the real problem. That's not the real problem at all. Listen to the promise of the better team. It's uh, in Jeremiah 31. Yeah, you can vaguely read it. Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new commitment, a new arrangement with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when they took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. So it's not like when I put Team Israel on the, on the, on the playing field back then. I've got a new plan. Um, I took them out of the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant when I was a husband to them. Um, mixing up the metaphors there a little. This is the covenant I will make uh, with the people uh, of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. I will put my Torah, my law, in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. What's the promise? The promise is that God will give us new hearts. God will change us from the inside so that unlike Israel at the time and unlike Abraham and unlike Adam and Eve, we will, from the inside out, be able to obey God. We will have the capacity to freely choose to do what God wants us to do. So he's going to put us back on the team, on the, on the soccer field of life. But now, instead of a set of instructions, how we should play, that we can't keep because our hearts are a mess, now he puts us on the field and he says, now, now there's going to come a time when everybody can actually follow me and play the game of life the way I want you to. He says, that's the promise, right? And that promise comes in the form of uh, the, the, the agent or the means by which this promise would be fulfilled in the Old Testament was the Ruach HaKodesh, the breath, the Spirit of God. Ezekiel 36 talks about this as well, that the Spirit of God will come and will give you and me new hearts. So Israel were acutely aware 
for a thousand years that they were failing to live for their God. And they wanted to. Many of them wanted to. But they stuffed up and they stuffed up and they got, they got punished for it. It's like, you know, they're 10 mil down at half time. And they're getting the absolute snot pummeled out of them by Satan and evil. And, and that's happening because, because they are collaborating with their opponents. They're failing to listen to God. They don't want to listen to God. And it's chaos. And they're longing for the day when God will fix something and do something about this. And they are looking for the day when God will change them and give them the power to live for Him and to win at the game of life. And eventually, that promise is reiterated. We see it here in the start of Jesus' ministry, right? The first thing in Luke's gospel, Jesus does when he, he, he's in a synagogue in Galilee, uh, in the power of the Spirit. So, so this is the, when you read the, we're, isn't it maybe we've covered the whole Old Testament, like that's a lot, and, and now we're into the New Testament, right? That when you read the Gospels, you see, with, if you've got all this background story, you go, wow, Jesus is here with the Spirit on the soccer field, doing life, and it's extraordinary. He's in the power of the Spirit. News about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in the synagogue and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unfolding, unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Truly, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Luke 4, he's, from the prophet Isaiah, he's saying, A whole new way of living is coming, where the poor will be cared for, where the kingdom of God will make sure that there's no more sickness, or no more disease, or no more oppression, or no more injustice. All the stuff that are signs that we, have, we are not playing the game of life the way they should. All the signs of this broken world that have the, the, the rebellious satanic Elohim cheering and going to God, yeah, you see God, these human beings, they can't do what you want them to do. We were right to reject you. All of that stuff is now going to be done away with. And Jesus says, I, I am the one now who is stepping onto this soccer pitch. <laughs> I am coming into this world anointed with the Holy Spirit to, to defeat evil. And, and it's like a hush. You can imagine all around. The stadium goes absolutely still as all the principalities and powers and all the spiritual beings look down and they go, wow, is, is this going to work? Yahweh himself has become a human with all human beings' vulnerability and all human beings' potential to sin. Now let's see what happens. Is Jesus going to be just like every other person? Is God himself going to show that when the chips are down, he becomes selfish? Is God himself going to show that he can't keep his very own commandments? How's it going to work? 
And, uh, and there's a murmur and a rumble in the, in the stadium as all the rebellious angels are like, ah, oh, we think there's no way this is going to work. It hasn't worked for two and a half thousand years. We're pretty sure this Jesus, even though he's God himself, on this soccer field is going to give up like everyone else and evil and death and injustice will triumph. And uh, that's the context uh, of Jesus' life, this battle against evil, this battle for, 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 for life, for justice, this battle against uh, all that would rob humanity of dignity. And what we see in, in Jesus is at every point, in dependence and of, on the Holy Spirit, he obeys the Father. He, he undoes the sin of Adam, the sin of Abraham, the sin of Israel, your sin, my sin, by never being selfish by never giving in to the temptations of the Elohim, by always doing what God wants him to do, even to the point of death and resurrection. And then you might think, okay, actually, if you read the Chronicles of Narnia, you'll see C.S. Lewis telling the story of Jesus' death as Aslan. And you'll see that there. It's this idea, Lewis does it so well, is, is a story um, that Satan and all, when Jesus dies on Good Friday, Satan and all the stands are cheering and erupting with joy. They think, we finally killed him. Yay, we've done it. And then, of course, on, on Easter Sunday, Jesus erupts from the grave again, and, and they just fall silent. They go, in C.S. Lewis's words, there's a deeper magic that they didn't understand. The truly innocent one has died and now has defeated the Satan by his own obedience and rises from the dead and is now standing in the middle of the soccer field of life and all the foes who thought they'd triumphed over him on Easter Friday are there cowering, defeated, and the stands are silent. And now we think to ourselves, what's going to happen to human beings? What's our role in this? Is it just Jesus who goes and fights? Do we just sit back and... And no, no, there's a, there's, God still has a plan, not just for one person to live for him, not just for one person to defeat uh, evil and injustice, but God's plan is to create, as it always was, a myriad, an infinite number of, of beings like us who will freely choose him and in so doing overcome evil. And that's what Pentecost is about. Because the church is the community of people who don't just sit on the sides and watch Jesus. Yay, you've defeated evil. We are now those who, when we join ourselves to Jesus, he pours his own breath, his own spirit into us to give us new hearts so that we join his team and we take our place on that field, living for Jesus, living for God, renewed from the inside with a heart now that that both wants to and can live for love and justice and life so that from the very inside we have the capacity and the ability to defeat evil and to live forever and to love and to serve. That's what Pentecost is all about. And we see this uh, in uh, Acts 2, just scrolling through, scrolling through. And I want to take us to our Oh, here we go. 
This is uh, what Paul says, or the writer to Ephesians says. He describes this. Uh, he says, Although I am the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Okay, what are these riches? What has Christ done? Well, in his preaching, he's going to make these riches known and he's going to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which was for ages past kept hidden in God who created all things. This plan we've outlined that God himself would step on into the stadium and come to fight for us. God's intent, which was hidden that's now being revealed, was that through the... Okay, let's read this verse together. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That's Pentecost. That's us. Who are the rulers and authorities? Where are the heavenly realms? They're all the Elohim, the angels, sitting in that stadium around, looking, looking at this world. Who's the church? It's you and me. And as we follow Jesus, as he gives us new hearts, as he changes us from the inside, he brings us onto the pitch and God, Yahweh, sits back and he goes to all the other angels and all those who rebelled against him and he goes, mate, I was right all along. Human beings can choose love over hatred. Human beings can choose life over death. Human beings can choose forgiveness over bitterness. Human beings... Uh, are not destined to end up on the scrap heap of history, but can exit this game uh, to, live to live happily ever after. <laughs> Don't you? And, and all, and you can just, the, the stadium is silenced and they go, man, who would have thought? That's Pentecost. The Holy Spirit giving you and me the capacity from the inside out to step onto the pitch of life as part of Team Jesus to change the world and to defeat evil. It's Pentecost. It's a gift. The promise is, has to be received. The question really is, will we join the team? See, um, uh, It's easy, it's easy to think that Christianity and religion is just about God doing something for you and blessing you. And, and it, it is that. But it's far more than that. It's far, far more than that. I was chatting with someone during the week who um, said to me their 11-year-old child asked them the question, Mum... Uh, why am I born? Why was I born? Like, and this is not a religious person. Like, why was I born? Well, so, well that's a good question, right? Well, and, and we all need, and it from 11 years old, so then the mum had, you know, how do you duck and weep? What do you say? Well, f to learn a lesson, to make sense out of life, to... No, we were born. You and I were born to show the wisdom of God that love will defeat hatred, justice will defeat injustice, and to be part 
of rolling back the forces of cosmic evil and rebellion against God and bringing in his presence in his kingdom to everybody in every part of this reality and in every other created part, every other bit of reality that exists. And, and we've got meaning and purpose in that. So when you go to work tomorrow, if you're still in the workforce, when you go to work, you're going to work as part of Team Jesus and you're, you're, you're full of the Holy Spirit and you take the Pentecost power of spirit with you to live for Jesus and put push back injustice and chaos and disorder and disease and hatred and bitterness in your workplace. That's what you're doing. You're not just going to, you know, fill in spreadsheets <laughs> or run projects for people or sell things. When you go home today and you're raising your kids, you're parenting, you're not just raising kids. You're actually discipling people who are caught up in this massive divine drama and you're training them to take their place as kids from the beginning on Team Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, pushing back evil, pushing back injustice, bringing in love, bringing in healing, bringing in forgiveness. That's what parenting's about. Now, along the way, you want them to learn to read and write and, and you know, get a good ATAR and get a good uni degree and have a lovely job. Like, that's all good, but not the main game. The main game is... We're on the stadium and we want to live in such a way, don't we? We want to live in such a way that when the Elohim, when, when the people see the choices you make, it's like when the ball gets kicked to you, they're like, wow, man, look at Mark go. Hey, he couldn't have done that by himself. That's God. Wow. Imagine, imagine Mark being able to make a choice like that. Oh, without Jesus. And, and the stadium, their mouths are shut because of the choices you make of humility and service and love as you follow Jesus. That's what you've got to do tomorrow. And that's what raise your kids to get onto that stadium and play that way, isn't it? That's, that's Pentecost. Um, but you've got to receive it. You've got to, I don't know, like, you've got to want that. You say, Holy Spirit, come. Come and fill me and renew me and energize me. I don't know. Maybe that feels hard now. Because like, oh, it's, it's the best I can do just to get out of bed and get my clothes on, right? Let alone go and change the world on Team Jesus. Well, yes, I get that. But you've got to receive it. So are you, do you want that? Do we want that as a church? Is that a vision for a community that can capture us? Let's pray. Uh, Holy Spirit, uh, we thank you that you have come to, to, to change our hearts and by doing so to reveal the wisdom of Yahweh, the great God, that your plan is good. That Holy Spirit, you've come to give us the capacity to to choose life over death, to choose obedience over disobedience, to choose forgiveness over bitterness, to choose uh, faithfulness over unfaithfulness. So I pray for us here, Holy Spirit, that you will, you will fill us.
Later in Ephesians, Paul says we are to be filled with the Spirit. So Holy Spirit, fill us. Fill us not so that we can just have lovely religious experiences, as good as those are, but fill us so that we can live Jesus-shaped lives tomorrow. I pray for our church that as we live in community here in this part of Sydney, that people will, people will know us by our love, and it'll be Holy Spirit-inspired, Jesus-shaped love. They won't just know us because we meet in a building on a hilltop, but they'll know, they'll, know, they'll know us by how we treat each other. Help us never have too little a vision of our lives and the significance of faith. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. We're going to...